Hello and welcome to Relinquish Podcast. My name is Travis. I'm Christina. Hey there. Hey. How you doing? I'm doing. You doing? Are you doing? I'm doing. Excellent. Today's the best day of our life. Absolutely. Okay. Well, hey there, everyone out there. If this is your first time joining us, let's tell you who we are. We are a husband and wife team with a desire to approach controversial and divisive issues with critical thinking, love, and respect. In each episode, we start by presenting opposing views to a controversial topic with equal respect and veracity to the best of our ability. That's right. Afterwards, we discuss the topic from our perspective and our opinions, which aren't always the same between us. Right. We believe differing opinions are a beautiful aspect of the human condition, and respect and love can be produced through disagreement. That's right. What do you know? That's right. There, I, There's beauty in our diversity. So join us as we explore that diversity together. We may not agree on a topic, and that's okay. That's the point. Our goal is to help provide some tools and factual data to equip you, the listener, to engage in conversations with people who disagree with you. Gasp. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Now, with that being said, this particular episode is not one of our controversial shows with the same kind of format. (laughs) So... Go listen to some of our other ones. This one is part of an ongoing series about addiction that we'll be be doing sporadically. Um, Although this episode, we might get controversial. I don't know. We'll see. We have a heart to help those who struggle with addiction. So we'd like to educate you out there about what addiction looks like. And if you're not familiar with it, we want you to become familiar with it. It's not uncommon for most of us to have been touched by it somehow, and that six degrees of separation is really just getting smaller and smaller as America continues this plunge into the addiction epidemic. That's right. Let's get a few things out of the way before we get started. Let's do some catch-up. Now, it took us forever to get those last two episodes out, but once they were out, they were getting picked up like wildfire. (laughs) I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. It's very exciting for me to see so many people listening to this show. Um, So if you're new and you're new to this show and you saw us from the UFO episodes, uh, for one, welcome. I'm glad you're here. But um, I would love to know if you are new. If you could send us an email at relinquishpodcast at gmail.com. Just let us know. Hey, uh, I'm new to the show. Or, what? What were you going to say? I was going to say, or you can reach out to us through the contact page on the website, which is relinquishpodcast.com. That's right. Now, if you do, I will send you some free music, some of my music for I free. Like, I feel like we should have a sound bite here. Yeah. You want to hear some? Here's a little sample of a song. Here's another little sample of another song. (laughs) 
Oh yeah. That's the kind of stuff you can go to sleep to. You just want to put it on, listen to it. Anyway, would love to share that with you for free. If you'd like, just reach out to us. Now, some of you are like, hey, I'm original. I've been with you guys since the beginning. Where's my music? Don't fret, never fear. Send me an email uh, through the contact page or, or through our email address and I'll send you some too. And by the way, if you're not new, you might not have heard that we don't do mailing lists. We don't do that. No, we don't do that. So you don't have to worry about getting emails from us other than perhaps a thank you. Yeah, we don't, we're not going to bombard you with anything. That's why really we don't put too many episodes out because you've got enough to do during the day. We have a <laughs> list of podcasts. Yeah, listen to our podcast all the time. So we think once every couple of months is good. Yep, easy commitment. Easy to stay on track with what we're doing. All right. The last addiction episode, we really focused on defining addiction, covering major substances that are an issue these days. So if you haven't listened to that episode, please do. It's episode three, and it's titled Addiction and Recovery. We intended to discuss the recovery part, but we just covered addiction. We had a great conversation. So now mm -hmm. we're talking about recovery. You might be saying, what is recovery? Is that from an injury or something? Now, when we talk about recovery in the context of addiction, we're referring to the process a person engages in to heal from an addiction, most often through a 12-step program such as AA, the use of therapy, physical exercise, and a pursuit in spiritual growth. So where should we start? Should we start with the 12 steps and discuss them and um, start with that? Let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. What are the 12 steps? What are they? Okay. We'll go through. I'll, I'll read one. You read the other. Yeah. You want to do that? I love it. All right. Collaboration. <laughs> Woohoo. Here are the 12 steps from Alcoholics Anonymous. Step number one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Number three made a decision to turn our will and lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Number four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Number five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Number seven, humbly asked Him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Number nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, Praying only for knowledge of His will, for us, and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. All right, that's it. Now, before we get started, I want to share a quote from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is where those 12 steps come from, that is really important for me personally, and that is this. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, 
Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Hmm. That's powerful. I, f- I have find, found that to be 100% true in the last six years I've been in the recovery world of addiction. So before we move on and talk about other approaches outside of the 12 steps, because it doesn't, it's not for everyone. Um, I just wanted to, for the uninitiated, to give a brief summary of the 12 steps, because there's a lot of lingo and words, and you might not really get it based on just us reading the 12 steps. Yeah. So essentially, you admit that you can't stop your drinking or your drug of choice, whatever it is, like, you can't do anything, you know, the, the self that got you into that mess can't get you out of it kind of a thing, but a power greater than you can get you out of it. And so you surrender to that, whatever that power may be for you. The program, um, you know, originally 80 years ago, our country was primarily Christian. And so that's the context of the wording, but today it's, it's really a religious. That's my understanding is that It's spiritual, but it's not connected to any one religion. Correct. Okay. So anyway, so you surrender to this power that's greater than yourself. Then you look at your stuff. You look at how you've shown up in your relationships and in your life. You look at how, um, you know, what things have happened to you. You do this just deep dive into all of that. And then you get right with, you know, God. You get right with others. You get right with yourself. Um, the God part is really where you've discovered these patterns of behavior that suck and these ways that you showed up that were like icky. And that's the whole like God piece. And then the piece that has to do with other people is apologizing, making things right, asking for forgiveness. Um, and then the part that has to do with yourself is moving forward. Your life looks different. You're going to continue to kind of take inventory, take stock and look at how you're showing up in the world. And when you're a jerk, you're going to admit it. You're going to take care of it. You're not going to be that person that you used to be. Um, You know, and so the way that the steps are written, you're kind of relying on God or this power that's greater than you for the strength and the knowledge and the fortitude to be able to do all of this. And then you share that truth with others. You share, they say in the program, your experience, your strength, and your hope with others. So that's my summary of the 12 steps. Wow. That was awesome. Thanks. Well done. I wouldn't have been able to do that. So good job. It's what I do. It is what you do. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm here. (laughs) It is why you're here. I would go off on tangents. I would go off and... Just never get anything. Speaking of tangents, I agree with that because when we <laughs> when our kids are getting disciplined, let's not go into that. <clears throat> um, Don't. Mama just yells, "You're grounded." Daddy goes off on a tangent, <laughs> gives them a lecture. I talk about their behavior and what's going on. Anyway, we're we're not going to talk about that. This, isn't, <laughs> <Okay. we're not> <laughs> gonna... <laughs> this is the tree of trust. Yeah, right here. Well, one thing I wanted to say real quick about. The, the stuff that you were talking about with the 12 steps for one, it, the way that you put it, it sounds like 
anyone, whether you're struggling with an addiction or not, can benefit from such a, a discipline of being honest with yourself and looking at things and making things right with other people. Oh, for sure. Um, I think there's a stigma around the 12 steps. I certainly had one prior to becoming heavily involved in it because of my own addiction. There's a stigma around it that um, you're a loser and you have a problem. That Well, you do have problems, but you're like a loser and you're never going to be better than that addiction. Mm. That was the stigma I had. Like, oh, well, if I admitted that I'm, you know, if I used the term alcoholic, well, there's automatically a picture that forms in your mind if you're not in recovery. And that picture is not a good one. It's of a person who's currently struggling, at least for me. It was a picture of a person currently struggling with the addiction and never getting better. So, you know, whenever I would hear the term, oh, he's an alcoholic or she's an alcoholic, it was always in reference to a person who wasn't better. It's true. I mean, even let's just say it's not alcohol, it's something else. Mm -hmm. The term, probably not the PC term, but like a drug addict. And so when you think of that, you think of someone living under a bridge, someone who's robbing and stealing and, you know, it's just like not Mm -hmm. a good image. Right. All that to say... I'm really hoping our continual discussions about addiction will help change that paradigm in people's mind because it did me. So what are some of the ways that people get sober? Well, well, there's, there's AA. There's AA, but there is AA also within other contexts. There are outpatient treatment centers where you go, I don't know, it's different depending on the person and the drug of choice, once a week, twice a week, three times a week you know, whatever you go, Mm -hmm. but then you, you don't stay there. And then there are inpatient treatment centers that you could stay for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, six months. It just depends. Right. And then what else? Um, well, there's therapies people get into that's outside of the realm of the intensive outpatient programs or the Inpatient programs, people just go see a counselor and um, maybe work through something that way. Well, and there are for sure um, modalities that don't involve the 12 steps. Like I mentioned, they're not necessarily for everyone. Okay. Um, So I just wanted to mention a couple of those that I know about. So one is called Smart Recovery, S-M-A-R-T, smartrecovery.org. And then another one that is a Buddhist approach is called Refuge Recovery. That's refugerecovery.org. Mm. Another one that's a peer support model is Communities for Recovery, communitiesforrecovery.org. <laughs> They're all orgs. Um, anyway, so, you know, it's AA is a way that a lot of people get sober and find sobriety, but it's not the only way. It's also, I have found that AA is like also like a gateway into other recovery programs. Yeah, I would agree with that because it's so prevalent. Right. It's a great thing. Um, let's talk about AA for just a second. Sure. I came through sobriety through AA, so I have a deep love for it. It's like an alma mater. Yeah, it's <laughs> my alma mater. Um, and I believe the, the reason it, it works is a, a few different aspects of it that that work. It's been around for 80 years. It has helped turn a lot of people 
away from addiction in that, in that time. One of the reasons why it works is that there is no central leadership to the organization. And it's completely 100% free. And it is a place that is very welcoming of the very people who don't feel welcomed anywhere. And so there's a culture around it. Like if if you're the if you go to an AA meeting for the first time and you're in the throes of your addiction, like you may even show up drunk, you're gonna feel welcomed. You're not gonna feel judged, and you're gonna feel like these people genuinely want to help you and care for you, even if you show up every day and continue to get your, you know, first day chip, you know. They're they're going to welcome you in every time. Well, and we're saying AA, but there's also NA, Narcotics Anonymous. There's, there's OA, Overeaters Anonymous. There's CA, Codependence Anonymous. There's Sex Addiction Anonymous. Yeah. Like there's pretty much any addiction you can think of. There's a 12-step group, which follows the exact same methodology. Mm-hmm. It's just you replace the word alcohol with whatever your drug of choice is. Right. Yeah. And there's meetings all over the place for those for those groups. Mm-hmm. And if you're now if you're someone who struggles with alcohol, you can go to a Narcotics Anonymous group and benefit, or vice versa, or vice versa. If yeah. That's all that's available. So I think AA works really well for what it does. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also Al-Anon. Yeah, so Al-Anon is essentially AA but for the loved ones of the alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So the family members, the friends, the coworkers, whatever. And they also have um, groups like that for other drugs as well. So there's like an Al-Anon for narcotic family members of Mm -hmm. narcotics. Sure. You know, The, the point is it's a group to help people understand what their loved one is going through. And what the person who's affected by it can and can't do. And (laughs) even more than that, (laughs) like, yes, for sure. But also it's considered a family disease, addiction is. And so the Al-Anon type of meetings are to help you understand how that person's addiction has affected you Hmm. and sucked you into unhealthy behaviors as well. That's right. They call it stinking thinking. (laughs) And there's... I mean, there's just so much wrapped up in it. Like it's it's when one person in the family is sick, everyone gets sick. It's true. I, I'm very appreciative for those groups like Al-Anon mm-hmm. because it really helps the loved ones understand what the person with an addiction is going through and what they need support-wise from their family in order to succeed and thrive in sobriety. Which isn't what you think. It's often boundaries and not enabling and detachment and like things like Mm -hmm. that. So it's, it can be very helpful and it can be very helpful to know that there's something you can do to help yourself, regardless of whether the person in your life with the addiction ever gets better. Right. Because sometimes they don't. They don't. This is, that's, I'm glad you said that. I really want to Talk about that for a second. Here, here, here's what's true about a person who's battling an addiction. 
there's only three outcomes for that person. One, they turn their life around and they do whatever it takes to get sober. And they do what we mentioned in that, in that quote earlier. They are honest with themselves to such a degree they're willing to do whatever it takes. So that's step one. That's one outcome. The other outcome is that they're going to get in prison. Third outcome is they're going to die. There's only three, those three outcomes for a person with a severe substance addiction. There's no other outcome, period. So a person who's affected by an addict, they, one, they need to know that because ignoring it and denying that there's a problem isn't going to make it go away. Right. Encouraging the person to get clean is one thing that they can do, but they cannot force a person to get sober. They have to want it. You can put them in the most expensive treatment facility out there, which we'll talk about treatment facilities and how much they cost. You can put somebody through an, a million-dollar program. They're not going to get clean unless they want it. Well, and there's a saying in Al-Anon, the three C's of addiction recovery are, I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, and I can't control it. Mm, that's good. And those are things that often loved ones of a person struggling with addiction, they try to do and, you know, well-meaning. Oh, sure. But those are things that aren't helpful. So those are the kind of, it's a foundational concept for Al-Anon. And that's, again, that's another reason why Al-Anon is so important. Because a person who's affected by an addict, they need that support community. They need a, they need a group of people who are dealing with the same thing that they can talk with and get encouragement and get, you know, that support. Well, and they go through the same 12 steps. They do. It's the 12 steps. So you have to realize that what I just said, you didn't <laughs> cause it, you can't control it, you can't cure it. So you have to surrender to a power greater than yourself. You have to look at your own stuff. You have to make yourself right with God. You have to make yourself right with other people. You have to get right with yourself so you're showing up authentically in the world and you're aware of how you're showing up and you're taking, you know, keeping your side of the street clean is what we say mm -hmm. in the program. And then you share your experience, strength, and hope with others. I mean, it's it's the same. It's just the other side of the coin. Yeah. So there are other recovery groups as well. There's a group called that's a Christian-centered group called Celebrate Recovery. It's a nationwide. Is it worldwide? Do you know? I think it is. Yeah. It's pretty big. Anyway, there's probably one in a town near you. Um, and so that's, if you're a Christian and you don't want to go to AA, or you want to go to both, you want to go to a place that is going to model the program really focusing on the faith aspect of it and speaking that lingo and language that you're familiar with. Celebrate Recovery is a great option for that. It's uh, longer than an AA meeting, but it's um, it's formatted a little different, but it's it's there and it's great. And, and then, then, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, and then there's Alcoholics Victorious is another Christian oh. group that I think is worldwide. Oh, okay. I don't know as much about that one. 
there and there's probably others within your town. Yeah, for sure. There's local resources from, from the churches making their own, which is great. So, what do you think the success rates are in recovery? Well, what do you mean by success? Well, that's a, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm saying what. Let's just say, what do you think the success rate of a person staying sober for five years plus? I was about to say five year sobriety rate because that's how okay. they they determine cancer well, survival rates. Five year sobriety five rate, year. survival sobriety rate. Both. Both. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, I happen to know it's not very good. It's not. It's not good at all. It is extremely low, especially. When we're talking about, look, and all substances are bad. They, they, they have their, their severities. But personally speaking, I think heroin and meth or cocaine are some of the hardest substances for a person to get clean and free from. Now, I may be wrong, but that's my opinion from being in this world. What were the substances? Cocaine, meth, and opioids? Yeah, opioids. Well, I think it should be said that in general, the first year of recovery is the most difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think over 90% of people relapse during the first year of recovery, but that doesn't mean they don't recover. Um, a relapse can mean that you, you know, like that's your last relapse and it ends in death or it ends in prison or something like that. But it doesn't have to mean that. Sometimes people have a relapse and that's what it took and then they they get clean. Um, but yeah, there are the way that certain drugs literally rewire and remap your brain um, you're more of a prisoner to those than you are to others. Yeah. And so that person, the amount of support and, I don't know, you know work that that person's going to have to do is a lot. It's a lot of work. And unfortunately, it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Uh, let's maybe segue into that for a second. The, one of the things I noticed about the recovery world is that if you're going to go into a facility, there are a lot of options, but I think the, the best options out there are the ones that are the most expensive. That's not always true, but... Not always. Not always. I mean, the one I went to is pretty darn expensive, but it was not anywhere near some of these things. That Some of the most expensive ones aren't very good because they're just country clubs people are going to yeah. and not doing any work. But, right. But a lot of the ones that are really solid, really good, cost around ninety to over $100,000 for 90 days. Yeah, we don't have that kind of money laying around, that's for sure. I mean... 
And they don't tell you that whenever you call them. They don't just give you the rate because they don't want to, you know, you to run away. They get you in, they, they, they show you the facility and they, it looks so great. And they show you the program. Then they show you the bill and the bill is typically due at least 80% of it to do like right away. Well, I will say, I don't know the percentage of people struggling with addiction who have insurance, but insurance often does cover treatment. So that's one good thing. It does thing. not cover all of treatment, though. Oh, no, not the entire no. cost. It, but it covers a minuscule amount. Your out of pocket cost is not $100,000. It's pretty darn close for a lot of these facilities, especially the good ones, because some of the good ones don't take insurance because sure. the insurance company dictates how they work. Sure, sure. That's fair. Um, and I, I will say, yeah. <laughs> just because I, of course, knew nothing about this before it came into our life at all, but it's not just the cost of treatment oh, because no. there's a continuum of care. Right. So you have treatment and then you have sober living, which right. is where you live with other people who are fresh in recovery and there's like a house dad or house mom or what do they call it? a house manager. House manager. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, and that can last several months possibly. Mm -hmm. And then you move into outpatient care where you're, you're going in, you know, however many times per week and you're right. getting counseling and things like that. So there's this whole, and I'm not saying that's not needed. Oh, it is needed. But there's a cost involved mm -hmm. with all the different steps is what I'm, why I'm saying it. Right. And that's why I wanted to talk about it, because if, if we didn't even know about it going into it, most of you aren't going to know about it either. So that's why we're talking about it, to mm -hmm. give you the education. So if even you, if you make it through treatment or your loved one makes it mm -hmm. through treatment, they still have all these hurdles to jump through as far as sober living, or sometimes that's not an option. So they have to figure out what's next. And then right. there's the outpatient treatment. And then there's just a lot. Yeah, so let, let, me, let me break it down real quick. So if you go into a really good facility inpatient for 90 days, you're going to be living with a lot of restrictions. You're going to be, what? The better the treatment center, the more restrictions you'll have. That's, yes, that because is absolutely Because some true. places don't have as many restrictions. Right, it's weird. Some places are co-ed. That's not a good idea. No. And some places allow smoking. Some places, you know, like every place is different. I some think smoking places is great. allow if, if, yeah. uh, unlimited phone calls. Like, I don't right. know. Let me tell you about my experience and <laughs> okay. why I thought it was great. And I and facilities and programs that operate a lot like the one I went through, I believe would have a higher success rate overall. But I'm going to... What? Well, I think it needs to be said that even the quote higher success rate of the place you were at out of the 19 guys that you're with, how many are in long-term sobriety? Not very many. Right. Not very many. Uh, so a, a, a good, you know, a few have died since. Yeah. So it's a better outcome, but it's still not a great outcome. You're at least given everything you possibly can to succeed. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to go too into detail, but those are different episodes where I will delve deep dive into my 90 days and treatment. But the program I was with had a rigorous schedule. It was very, very, there was a lot of rules, but the highest priority they put on everything was accountability. So I lived in a house with a bunch of other addicts. They're all dudes. 
And we had a rigorous schedule. The guy who ran the program was an ex-Marine, so he ran it like a boot camp. We were up by 5 o'clock in the morning. We had the whole house cleaned by uh, 7.30. We spent the entire day doing like schoolwork, working on our steps. And then we, we worked out for an hour and a half doing CrossFit. We made all of our own meals. We meal planned. We prepped. We cleaned, constantly cleaned. Everything had to be just perfect, tidy. We had our rooms inspected three times a day for everything to be folded right. And we went to meetings every single night, and we had rules about what we could and couldn't do at a meeting. We couldn't talk to women. We couldn't... There were so many things that we couldn't do. We were... we. We could only do one phone call a week with a family member that was 10 minutes and it was monitored. Um, so we were, anyway, we had to work through the 12 steps. We had to do all this stuff. What were you going to say? Well, I think it's important to note, at least in your experience, a lot of the guys who are coming into treatment were young guys. Right. And regardless of the age, um, just in case the listeners don't know, when you become addicted to a substance and these changes happen in your brain, you stop maturing emotionally, mentally and emotionally. So if you were 17 when you became addicted and you are now 40, you have the emotional maturity of a 17-year-old. So I love the fact that in your experience, these guys were learning how to take care of themselves as adults. They were learning yes. how to cook and how to clean and how to do laundry. Yeah. Like all these skills that are functional and valuable later when you're not in treatment. And they had to do it to such a degree that when they are out on their own in the world as a newly sober person, at least they'll have a handle on cooking, cleaning, and laundry and things like that. Like those won't be concerns. Right. So I think that's wonderful. I will say that when I got in there and I had to do all that stuff, I was like, I already know how to do this. Like, this is great. <laughs> hmm. Whatever. I know how to do all that stuff. <laughs> what I learned while, while in there, I'm thinking, okay, 90 days, 90 days, 90 days. And I was working my tail off and I was doing great. But then they started telling me, well, once you graduate here, you need to go on to sober living. And I was like, whoa, so slow your roll. Like no one told me when I came in here that I was going to not be going home after 90 days, that mm. I needed to go and live in yet another facility for 90 days to six months or whatever at an additional cost. And um, I need to get home. And anyway, I learned that that's normal. That's what they do. They, and for good reasons. And for great reasons. Yeah. And so I worked really hard and I got the approval to not have to do that. I got the approval to be able to go home, which was great. But it is standard operating procedure for a person who goes into inpatient treatment that when they're out, if the treatment center is worth its weight and salt or whatever, weight and gold, what's the term? If, well, I guess it depends on what time period you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> if it's worth anything... It's going to encourage a person to continue on with their recovery, staying in that support community, usually with the very same people they were in treatment with, so they can slowly step back into uh, life. And the reason being, and I've seen this happen to so many of my fellow brothers who relapsed, 
over the course of the first year is that they didn't slowly acclimate themselves back into life. They, because they were withdrawn from daily life for so long, I mean, again, we couldn't have a phone, we couldn't have internet access. So we were, they, as soon as they got out, they went to town, just going nuts, eating whatever they wanted to eat, starting to engage in relationships, and they eventually relapsed. They didn't slowly, you know, transition. Transition, that's the word. Well, I think too that regardless of if you go to sober living or not or whatever, um, it's always encouraged to do 90 meetings in 90 days. Yes. So going to a meeting every single day for as long as you need to, which for some people might be a long, long time. And for others, maybe not at all. Like there becomes a point when going to meetings becomes kind of this like idol. I don't know what Mm -hmm. in a secular context, what you would call that, like a crutch. Yes, a crutch. And so it can be unhealthy at a certain point. But early on, I would say for most people who are doing a 12-step type approach, Mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever kind of program you're working, 12-step or not, you need to be working it a lot in early recovery. Mm-hmm. I mean, every moment of every day until, you know, it takes the nervous system a while to rewire itself and to create these healthy neuropathways. And I mean, I don't know, I've seen neural retraining programs that say a minimum of six months. Those aren't addiction related, but I mean, it's the brain. It takes the brain a while to lay down these new patterns. It, you know, it took you a little while to get into it. It's going to take a little while to get out of it. That's true. And that's a great point that you that you are making at the moment. Family members who have a loved one who's in an addiction and maybe getting into recovery, they have to know that that first year is really about them just supporting that person in whatever capacity and allowing them to take that recovery as top priority, at least for that first year, and have that expectation, okay, this person's going to be doing this for the rest of their life, not because they have to, because once you've kind of gotten to that point in recovery where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm great, like I'm doing great, I feel good, I feel solid in my recovery, you're now going to the meetings, not for yourself, but for the person who's the newcomer. You're going not as a means to stay sober. Again, if a person is using the meeting as a means to stay sober, like that's their idol, they're missing the entire point of the 12 steps. That's become their higher power. And anyone in the 12 steps who's seasoned would say no. But regardless, whenever you, a person is really doing well in, in, in sobriety, they still are going to go to those meetings to help the person who needs help. They're going for it, not for themselves. They're going for that 12 step to to share their experience, strength and hope. So I will hear family members just be like, is this, why do they have to keep going? Like they get, it's hard. It's hard. If you have kids, you know, if you have not had your spouse be fully present for any length of time, and then all of a sudden they're, you know, well, that you, that you perceive them to be well and they're back and they're contributing to your family, except that they're not because they're gone at meetings all the time. It can be hard, yeah. but it's necessary. It is necessary. You got to think the long road. You do have to think the long road. 
If you're married, let me encourage you. This is part of the vowels. Vowels. This the is vowels. part. Of, this is part. It's of not the a part of the consonants. <laughs> this is part of the vowels. Vow. I can't <laughs> say it. This is part of the vowels. What kind of? Can you say the They're word? Vows. Vows. There you go. There you go. For sickness and health and all that. That's what this is. Like for better or for worse, this is it. I can tell you that if a person is an addict and they're married, there's no better advocate for them than their spouse. Sure. Um, like, I don't think I'd be doing as well as I am now if it wasn't for you. So thank you. You're welcome. I'll give you a little golf clap. <laughs> so success rate, not good. But it can be better if everyone out there listening gets more educated about what's required in recovery how to best support a family member who's who's struggling. Or if you're an addict and you don't know what to do, well, there's help and there's a way out. And let me tell you from my own experience, there is freedom. There is, I, today's the best day of my life. Absolutely. <laughs> it's the best. Best day ever. I, I think the biggest barrier for people is the treatment centers. Because a person can actually just go to AA, they can get a sponsor or NA or whatever, they can go to one of the A's meetings. They can get a sponsor and they can get sober. They don't have to go through an intensive inpatient treatment facility. You don't have to do that. However, however, sometimes you do. <laughs> you really do. You really, really do. Um, a person needs to be removed from society and put in a place where they can be safe to themselves and others and away from their drug of choice and work the program, work the steps. Unfortunately, those places are just cost prohibitive for most, for a lot of people. And some of them aren't run very well and you often just won't know. You won't know. You have to do your research. So I highly encourage anyone out there who's needing to look for a place, really do some vetting. There are, there are a lot. And the state-run, I'm not against state-run facilities, but typically the state-run agencies or facilities are not going to be very good. All they are is just a place for you to detox. However, okay. I just want to say that from what I understand, if someone is in active addiction and they are willing to get treatment, just get them into treatment. Yeah. If it's going to take you a day or two to vet a good place, don't. Like true. You, your window to get them in a treatment might be small. That's true. If they're willing to go like that moment and you have no idea where to go. Just, just go. To, just go. Just go to some place and hope for the best. <laughs> like, yeah. Because you, you're right. I mean, I, I went and I was even given the option of waiting until the weekend was over to spend my last weekend with y'all. And I went in on a Thursday and I was like, no, I'm, I'm going today. That was my one clear-headed moment. Well, and some treatment centers have the ability to, I don't know what you call it, have a wing or a ward or whatever for detoxing, and some don't. Right. And that could also be good to know, depending on your situation, because I've known of people who were willing to get into treatment, and then they got there, and they weren't acceptable because they needed to go through detox first and the treatment center they went to didn't have that capability. So unfortunately, the person that I know 
you know, never ended up getting treatment and they died. So that's just something to consider. That is a, that is a good point that I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, some facilities, even though they don't have a detox wing, they have a facility that they're connected to that they'll send you. Like you don't have to get vetted. For, like sure. they'll determine whether or not you need detox and 90% of the people coming in do need a detox of some sort. And so they'll send them there for a few days and then they'll be transferred over to the treatment facility. But then there's some who just, they don't have that connection or that relationship with the detox. And so it's a separate deal and that's just tough. Right. I think here a lot of, especially the state run treatment centers, you go to the hospital for detox. Yeah. And then who knows what happens to you then. Man. It's a lot. It's a lot. And there, it seems to be that there's so much, there's so many forces out there that kind of work against a person trying to get sober. For one, they have their addiction. That's, that's working hard enough on them <laughs> to mm -hmm. like prevent them from getting sober. They have small moments of clarity and resolve where they're like, I'm ready and those windows last either 30 minutes or a day or two. And if they're fortunate enough to find a facility that can't afford it, or they're arrested and they just keep getting back into this cycle. Now, one thing I've noticed over the years is that because addiction is becoming so prevalent in our country, more and more people are stepping up to try to make a difference and to change things, to say, how can we approach this differently? Because it's becoming very problematic. Um, and one of those things that I've seen is something called a drug court. Do you know what that is? Yeah. Yeah. I know... Some drug courts are more successful than others. Oh, are they? Yeah, I don't know a lot about it, but I have had discussions with others who do, and they've mentioned certain states are known for having good drug courts, and other states, it's like terrible, or sometimes it's even cities, I guess, more than it is states. Mm. But yeah, they're not all created equal. Sure, as they probably shouldn't be, you know. Um, they need to be localized and figure out what works well for them in their county or whatever. Um but if you don't know what a drug court is, I, I think a, a general synopsis would be it's a you've got a, a court that rather than just straight up prosecute a person with a drug possession or something of that nature, that the person's obviously an addict, they will put them through a program to help get them out of prison if they if they behave well in prison, if they're having to serve some time. They can get it let out early if they're willing to do a lot of things that have to do with recovery. And they have kind of like probation where they have to kind of follow up. They have a, a probation officer they got to follow up with and drug test. But it's designed to support the person to get clean because mm -hmm. they realize that that's the root issue of what's going on. And they're really designed to help the person rather than to hurt them. And there's a lot of success rate in some drug courts. Mm -hmm. I saw a really good documentary on Netflix called Heroin, 
but with the E at the end in parentheses, as in like a female hero. Mm-hmm. And it focuses on this the one town in the U.S. that has the highest addiction, opioid addiction rate in the country. And it follows this one uh, paramedic who's making a huge difference in her little town, the town that has the highest ov- overdose rate and all that kind of stuff. And they have a drug court. And so it's only like an hour long. It's not, not long. But it's a really good documentary. I highly recommend it for anyone. And it shows a lot of these success stories of people who really were in the, the bad throes of addiction coming out of it with the love and support of the community. I think one of the main things is that element of love and support and that we need to be having these conversations that it's, there needs to be a, it needs to be less taboo and it Mm -hmm. needs to be more, um, I don't know, just something that's being discussed so that people are educated and people can make informed choices about how they navigate, you know, this topic. Based on a lot of statistics that we know of with various types of addiction, whether it be porn, substances, or whatever, I would say combined with all that, all those statistics, at least one out of four or one out of three people have an addiction of some sort. One out of four or one out of three people in our country? or Yeah, let's just stay with that. Okay. What do you think? Do you think that's would be an accurate projection? <laughs> like if you're looking at... Addictions to pornography. So I actually have some data on that. Do you? I do. Um, I recently did a training for my career that had to do with addiction. And some of the things that we learned, um, only about 10% of Americans dealing with addiction receive treatment, Mm. which is kind of a sobering number. So 90% are not receiving treatment. Right. Wow. 4% of American teenagers struggle with a form of substance use disorder, which is like the medical term for addiction. Okay. One in every 16 adults reported having a substance use disorder in 2017. So that's a few years ago, but one in 16 and let's see. Yeah, so that's I'll that's all I'll say. Okay, so maybe one out of ten. Yeah, maybe. Have an addiction, like a severe addiction, to something. Possibly. Like a, when I say severe, I mean I'm not talking about addiction to, to nicotine or coffee. You know what I mean? Talking about porn or gambling or. Drugs and alcohol is what I'm really referring to. I can Those tell things. you. Sure. I can tell you that just a number that we learned was that it costs more than $740 billion a year um, because of healthcare, crime, lost productivity, like all the costs affiliated with addiction in our country. That's a lot of money. Yes, it is. And... I'm going to say something that might be controversial. So, you know, prep yourselves, <laughs> you, everyone. You couldn't let the episode I end without it. Let's do it. Let's, let's go off with the bang. So I wonder if those stats that you read include 
maybe a, an addiction to a FDA-approved prescription drug that that's not an opioid. Hmm. Now I'm gonna. This is where the controversy comes in. There's a, there's enough controversy already with the overprescribing of opioids, which literally causes people to turn to heroin after they've, you know, exhausted their resources of trying to get the pills when they become an addict. But there's another drug out there that's been prescribed for decades now that is essentially methamphetamine in a pill. It's given from young children up until, you know, up until early 20s or even later for ADD, like Ritalin, what's the other one, Adderall. Mm -hmm. People become addicted to those pretty hardcore. Or if you're not even, if you, a person may not even realize they have an addiction, but they're, they've been taking it for over 10 years and it, it's going to, it's going to rewire your brain. Yeah. Well, and benzos. Well, those uh, are benzos is prescribed a, for different things, right. but they're also highly addictive and a big deal right now. Yeah. There's a really good documentary out there called Take Your Pills that follows the ADD medication out there. And it gives a really good history about methamphetamine and where Ritalin come from and that kind of stuff and Adderall. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I didn't know this, but back in the early 20th century, cocaine and and I think heroin was were prescribed as pharmaceuticals for the population. I mean, cocaine was in Coca Cola. <laughs> sure, but um, amphetamine, which is what the ADD medication is, that was actually prescribed back in I think in the twenties and thirties, and it was huge. They they marketed it towards housewives to, to help them be more productive and so forth. It was weird, but in this documentary, they show all these old commercials and all these old ads for it. And this is a, a factoid that many people don't know. The Nazis were a bunch of the soldiers were given meth. Did you know that? Okay. Yeah. Now, now we're entering like crazy town territory. <laughs> that's not crazy town. That's fact. Well, no, I just mean like... But what I'm saying is this is nothing new. These things have been around. We're just calling them something different. And we're, we're putting an FDA-approved stamp on it as if it's okay. And we're giving it to kids and we're giving it to adults. And sure. these things are highly addictive and they're, high, they're not good for you. They're bad. Right. And so um, that leads me into my point, which is... It's, I believe it's not just illegal drugs. <laughs> well, it's not just illegal drugs. I believe that a huge part of our addiction problem here in America is that we're we are presented with drugs both legally and illegally and there's no difference between them. And so we have become a culture accustomed to taking drugs. I will agree with that. To change the way we feel. Yes. To change who we are. To yes. change something about us. We have this culture that, oh, there's something going on. I need to take a pill for it. 
There's no difference between that and like, oh, I need to go smoke this to go feel better about it. Yeah, I mean, I will say that we have a culture where feelings are discouraged. Like feelings are seen as there's a problem. Right. If you're feeling, you know, down, down, depressed, I mean, anxious, anxious, whatever. Well, we got a pill for that. And I'm not saying there's not a such thing as clinical depression or anxiety, like where medication is needed. However, I'd say 90% of the things out there are not though. Like they, I just mean that as a culture, when we are experiencing those types of things, insomnia, like any, really any symptom you can think of, but feelings especially, Mm -hmm. when we're experiencing those things, the go-to is there's a pill to fix it and not, well, let's look at where it's coming from and take care of the root cause, which that's a whole nother episode. Well, that will be another episode because we're going to talk about that on our pharmaceutical episode. Okay. Because that stuff is not uh, coincidence. It's deliberate. Like that mentality that's been implanted in us, it's deliberate to, for us to have a, a pill for a solution. All that to say, while there are many factors that drive the addiction epidemic in America, one of the biggest influences of that, I think, is this culture that we have produced of numbing ourselves. The second part of that uh, is that we are becoming an escapism culture as well. Like we want to escape from life. Like So we, we find a way to... Again, I think and it might just be rooted in what you just said as far as like, we don't want to feel things. And so we try to maybe stuff them. Or feelings are hard. Feelings are hard. I know that when I had to work through my stuff, I had to process through a lot of stuff, a lot of feelings that I never wanted to deal with, which I stuffed down, which ended up metastasizing into these behaviors that showed up later on. Right. Until I figured out what it was and rooted them out. Anyway. I mean, yeah, just think of guilt, fear, shame, doubt. I mean, the list goes on and on of all these things that are hard to feel. Right. And if we don't deal with those in a healthy way. Grief, loss. Grief, loss, you know. If we don't deal with these things in a healthy way, if we don't deal with hurt, if we deal with unforgiveness, if we deal with all different kinds of stuff and we and we don't deal with that in a healthy way, it stays with us and it metastasizes and it grows over time and it ends up just leading us into these bad behaviors, whether it be an addiction or something else. But okay. back to the, back to the, where we are. Recovery is not easy, but it is a, it is a beautiful thing to go through the process of getting clean and sober. It's just a lot of work and it's hard. So I encourage anyone out there who's an addict or is a, is a, has a loved one that is to do what you need to do and to help support each other in whatever way that is. Because chances are you know someone, again, with those t- statistics. Yeah, as they say in 12-step groups, it works if you work it and you're worth it. And you're worth it. That's right. <laughs> well, I think that, that wraps it up on this one. And I'm, I'm so glad and thankful for all of you that stuck with us on this one and uh, are listening to this addiction series. On the next episode of the addiction series, I think I will go into um, talking about my experience 
in the 90-day program I, I was at. It was uh, amazing. I might take some excerpts from, the, from my book and just maybe read or talk, talk them through. Well, that about wraps it up. Thanks again for joining us. Next time we're going to be doing, the next episode that you will see from us is going to be on vaccines, which is such a hot topic right now. It's hot right now. Everyone's talking about it. As they should be. Well, sure. <laughs> and we're glad you are. Well, yes and no. Like sometimes I'm glad, sometimes I'm like, can I just, can I just go to the store and not be asked about vaccination? Well, can it's how you're talking about it that hopefully will change after you hear our episode. Yes, please. This episode is not what you, not what you think. It's not, it's, well, it is a controversial episode because it has to do with a controversial topic, but yeah, I would like, I'm just, I'm tired of hearing about it. So let's do an episode and get it out, get it out there. And hopefully we can calm down a little bit. So join us next time as we respectfully agree to disagree. Disagree.